Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. I'm Bob Shrum, the director of the Center for the Political Future at USC Dornsife. Welcome to this first summer edition of the Bully Pulpit from the Center. I'm here with my co-director, Mike Murphy. We're going to talk with our guests for 40 minutes or so and then turn to questions from you. Mike will ask them when we get to that point. Let me introduce our guests. Ira Reiner headed the world's largest local prosecutor's office as the 39th district attorney of Los Angeles. He also served as L.A. City Attorney, L.A. City Controller, L.A. City Fire Commissioner, and President and CEO of the L.A. Homeland Security Advisory Council. We're proud to have him join us as a fellow this fall to lead a study group on police and prosecutorial misconduct. Uh, Noelia Rodriguez served as Press Secretary and Director of Communications for First Lady Laura Bush and as Deputy Mayor for Dick Reardon uh, here in Los Angeles. She's currently the Chief of Staff at MetroLink. Southern California's regional rail system. So let me turn right away to a question about local politics, because it was Tip O'Neill who popularized the phrase, all politics is local, and a lot of it does seem to be local right now. Uh, Let's start with the mayor's race, where billionaire developer Rick Caruso is competing against Congresswoman Karen Bass to be the next mayor of Los Angeles. What should they be doing in their campaign? campaigns, how do you handicap the race? And will homelessness and crime still be the dominant issues? Ira, you want to start off? (laughs) Well, thank you. Yogi Berra is alleged to have said that the hardest thing to predict is the future. So uh, (laughs) uh, a uh, political race, as uh, you guys know better than anybody, uh, is, (laughs) well, put it this way, as difficult as it may be, you know, if I could go to the track and then wait till the stretch run before I ha- I could place my bet, uh, I'd probably do pretty well. And uh, right now, uh, we're in the stretch run for the mayor's race, and it looks like that uh, Caruso is way back in the stretch run. Uh, I mean, there was a 12-point swing uh, from election night when then the late ballots came in. And now uh, Karen Bass has a seven-point lead. The uh, primary electorate typically should favor someone like Caruso uh, because he is, whether however he is uh, registered, he's more or less perceived to be a Republican. And Democrats historically are much lazier to vote in primaries than Republicans. So come the general, you would expect Karen Bass to do better than she did in the primary. Well, uh, she doesn't have to do better. Uh, it's uh, uh, Caruso who uh, blew $40 million in the primary, which is a number that's incomprehensible. And yet he couldn't even get really all that close to Karen Bass. So it clearly does not look like, uh, does not look very good for Caruso. And putting my bet down in the stretch run instead of before the race started, I'd put my money on Karen Bass at this point. 
Noelle, you want to weigh in on that? And sure. Are homelessness and crime going to be dominant issues? And one thing that intrigues me is the possibility that reproductive rights could also play a role in this campaign. Uh, I noticed that Rick Caruso just put out a very strong statement affirming his support uh, for a woman's right to choose. Right. So keeping up with the Yogi Berra theme that Iris started, this is like deja vu all over again from 1993 <laughs> when Dick Reardon was was elected, ran and, and was elected mayor in Los Angeles, like Ruth Caruso, an outsider who had never been in elected office, but had been very civically engaged. Uh, somebody from the West Side, a millionaire. Billionaires weren't so common back in the in the 90s. And uh, he got elected on uh, making Los Angeles a safer city platform and everything. If you hit the concept, which worked, and obviously he delivered on in the 90s, was from a safe city, all else follows. And that's kind of what, what Rick has been, has been trying to do. Of course, the big difference this year with the election calendar is in 93, you had an election in March, and then the two months later or so was the general. And this year, it's different because now you've had the election, and five or six months later, there's time for people to be um, disengaged, going on, taking care of their own personal businesses, summer vacation, trying to get past pandemic in 2022. And also, the economy is the big deal. The prices of gas are skyrocketing. And the other thing, Bob, is is crime. It's now an issue again. And I'll, I'll tell you, I work, my office where I am today is at the Intercontinental Tower in downtown Los Angeles on 7th and Fig. And I park across the street from our building. Talking about crime, this morning as I was pulling into the parking lot, LAPD officers were there handing out this flyer, telling people, the drivers coming in, that there have been incidents of break-ins into your car. And so when it comes to voting and how it all, what it all means and how you connect to a candidate, it's the question people ask themselves is, how am I being affected? And as a single woman in Los Angeles, crime is at the top of, at the, top of the list, followed very closely by the economy. And so those are the kinds of things that people are going to be thinking about over the next several months until we have the election again which seems like an eternity from now in November. And so um, it's all about connecting. And as Jim Carville, I'm so, somebody I'm sure you know, um, it's all about the economy. And in this case, crime also. So it's almost, it is a repeat of what was going on when Dick Reardon ran and was elected office. So to office. And so I don't know, I'm not going to handicap because I'm not, you know, I'm not really watching the mayor's race as closely as maybe some others. But it looks like Rick has some some ground to make up, and and Karen is you know in a pretty good place right now. But again, it's a long time until election day. Mike, you want to come in here? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first of all, I want to thank our guests and our fellows. We're so excited to have you at USC. It's going to be great for the students. A lot of political experience here. Noella and I are old friends from the old Republican Party. Um, and, uh, and many other honorable places. So I, I want to ask a follow up on the Caruso thing. And I too will quote the great philosopher Yogi Berra, who said, it ain't over till it's over. So we just had a primary, but I, I like to remind people that Caruso's candidacy is kind of an unnatural act in the city of LA 
It's a heavily Democratic city. He does have a Republican history until he pretty much left the party in 2010. He briefly rejoined to help his friend John Kasich as the anti-Trump candidate in 16. But, you know, Bernie Sanders, not Joe Biden, won the city of L.A. in the last primary. So what's interesting to me, and Noelia got at this, is in a general election that's not in kind of an off-year, low-turnout model, which has traditionally been city politics in L.A., you know, will anything change? It's still going to be a Democratic city. And so I think it's going to come down to tribal loyalty, comfortable for Democrat versus so fed up with politicians, try something new like Caruso. And he'll sure have the money to make an argument. My question for you guys, my follow-up on all this is we have seen in the special elections, in the primaries so far this year, a lot of anger against the Democratic Party, both schisms inside it, and we're going to get on to the recall race. I'm very interested in what Ira thinks about some of that uh, for the DA up in San Francisco. But do we think, you would think nationalizing it is very, very good for Karen. But we're seeing Democratic districts, particularly of Latino voters, showing kind of a Biden protest, a little bit of a rebirth of the Republican Party, um, a a more conservative pro-life Latino Democrat beat a progressive uh, a Latino Democrat in Texas uh, in a, in the, in the Texas primary a few weeks ago. Do we think the national thing will trickle down and maybe give an outsider like Caruso something to work with in the general election in that bigger voter? I think most analysts think Latino voters could decide this in the city election. So, Ira, we'll start with you. See see what you think. Well, Mike, I, d- I don't know that I would um, sort of uh, think of it in terms of uh, those demographics. Uh, I, I think there's an issue that cuts through everything. Uh, uh, homeless, of course, except that I don't know that homeless is going to help or hurt any candidate because it's an intractable problem that nobody has a solution for and the public doesn't think anybody as a solution. Um, but crime's a different question. Uh, crime, uh, every now and then, and it's not an issue in every campaign, but it has risen, uh, in this campaign and in, and in this time. And, you know, some of us of a certain age remember, uh, an old expression, I guess from the sixties, uh, that, um, a liberal, uh, is, uh, I'm sorry, a conservative is a liberal who's been mugged. <laughs> well, uh, crime has reached a point that, um, it is a matter of constant conversation throughout the entire liberal West side. And so crime could be the issue. And of course, as you pointed out, that Russo has the money to sell any issue that he lights on, but crime could be the issue that divides one candidate, uh, from another. I don't think there is another issue. Uh, well, there is one other that's always in every campaign, and that's party affiliation, which is the number one determinative of how people vote. And here in Los Angeles, uh, clearly that uh, benefits uh, Karen. And that showed, uh, that uh, came through in the late tally to where she went from five points down to seven points ahead, a 12-point swing, which I think you'll agree is uh, more than unusual. Uh, so, uh Big hill for uh, Caruso to climb, but if he has a horse to ride, to go back to my earlier uh, sports analogy there, 
uh, that that horse is crying. Noelia, what, what do you think and what about the frustration with the political class and outsider campaign? Reardon had some of that. Is is that going to be relevant to Caruso's pitch in addition to what, and I agree if I were about this, about the crime issue being a protest vote he could harness? Yeah, I don't see it as big an issue as maybe some make it out to be. I think people are looking for for solutions and for ideas on how to address the issues that are affecting all of us in our daily lives, not just within the city limits of Los Angeles. And so I think, you know, there's definitely opportunity, especially because there's still the benefit of time, even though it is a tough time in the summer to get people's attention. I think that, you know, come the fall, people will refocus. But I want to touch a little bit, Mike, on what you said about the young woman whose name escapes me now, who just got elected for that special election in South, in South Texas. Really, I was born in Brownsville, Texas. So, and she's from right up the road from, from, um, the river where I, where I was born. And the excitement there with her election is just so palpable. You're talking to friends and, and family. And, um, and then no coincidence when Roe v. Wade was overturned last Friday, she was one of the spokespeople, um, that you saw talking about this great day for, for people who supported the overturn of Roe v. Wade. And I wanted to talk a little bit, and I didn't really address this point when Bob asked it about, um, the, the overturn last Friday that we saw from the Supreme Court. I think most of us were shocked, but not surprised because obviously we'd had a, a, a teaser, if you will, with that leak a few weeks back. But, um, just from my personal experience, I was literally coming of age in 1973 when Roe v. Wade became the law of the land. And I grew up here in the San Gabriel Valley, and and unlike the trigger laws that now have reversed things in in so many of those red states, that didn't happen when 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 choice became became the law of the land. It took a culture shift to really get us to a different place. And so I saw the impact on a couple of fellow students who were really good girls and just happened to you know, find themselves in the, in this predicament. They didn't have choice, even though choice was legal at that point. And it changed the course of their lives. And I think about going back to that kind of, of a situation among, among especially young people who don't have the options that say others would have. And so as, and as I've been thinking about this for the last several days, I was thinking of so many of the parallels that existed back then that are full in full force in 2022. We have the choice situation. We have the Arab oil embargo now reflected with high gas prices and the demand and the cost to all of it. We had Watergate was, was in the news. Now we have the January 6th hearings. We had Title IX and we still have equity issues that, that we're dealing with. The Vietnam War was running, was winding down. And here we have what's going on with Russia attacking Ukraine. So all of these similar things are in people's minds. And at the end of the day, they're thinking about the things that affect them because it's, it's stimulus overload to be thinking about all of these global issues where you can control one thing. And that's what you do at the ballot box. And I think that the candidates have an opportunity to have messages that resonate with people that make them feel that somebody's going to make their lives a little bit better come election day. Yeah. Mike alluded, Ira, to. Well, more than alluded, talked about that crime issue, so did Noelia. We saw in San Francisco in the primary the self-proclaimed progressive 
District Attorney Chase Boudin recalled, not by 20 points, which it looked like on election night, but by 10 points. Uh, there's also an effort underway here to recall the L.A. District Attorney George Gascon. As a former DA yourself, what do you make of these recall efforts? Are some DAs moving too far, too fast in terms of what they call reform, even for progressive voters? Bob, I don't think that's the uh, the proper analysis of too far, too fast. Let me limit whatever comment I make to L.A. because uh, uh, we have enough here dealing with uh, the L.A. DA without my trying to uh, handicap what's happened in San Francisco. I don't read the chronicle up there, so I don't follow that close enough. No, I don't think it's too uh, too far, too fast. When he came in, he came in with good ideas, but very, very bad execution. Uh, and you could you could put that in all caps, uh, the execution of it. There's a real quick 15-second or 10-second story about Erdogan uh, in Turkey. There was a square uh, with lots of grass and trees and kiosks and families would gather, and it was extremely popular. After he was elected, he decided a higher and better use for that property would be to pave it over and put up buildings. Well, that had a very strong reaction from virtually all of uh, Istanbul. Uh, that They wanted that park setting in the middle of a uh, urban uh, city uh, to remain. And so with all of the reaction, Erdogan's response to it was, we were elected, we get to decide. Well, that's the difference between governing that is building a consensus and ruling. And what happened, and this is what I mean by some very good ideas, but very bad execution. The first hour of the very first day that uh, George was in office, he had a printed list of a whole bunch of changes, some of which were rather startling. Others were not so much, but they were issued within the very first hour, not the first day, the first hour he's in office. You can't do that to uh, a thousand employees, particularly if there are a thousand lawyers, for God's sakes. I mean, trial <laughs> lawyer, you're going to do that with 1,000 trial lawyers. Um, and what happened is that it hit critical mass and it exploded. And it not only exploded with his entire office, but it exploded with the judiciary that the office deals with. There was no consultation there at all. What he clearly should have done, and it was a, a you could call it a rookie mistake or that he was just under too much pressure from support groups that too often uh, own, the only passing grade is 100%, and they, and they want it now. And so what he did is, I believe he has squandered. He squandered an opportunity for significant change. Now, I don't know that the recall is going to qualify with the number of signatures. If it does, I think he's history. And if he isn't recalled at the next election, his chances, Yogi Berra to the contrary, uh, he has almost no chance of being reelected. And it's not because of the underlying reform. It's because of his failure to govern, to, uh, uh, in effect, rule by trying to impose immediately without any effort to consult or uh, uh, to somehow develop uh, a consensus with the public. public was open to change. They were not open to 
just an immediate snap of the fingers, broad change without explanation. Excellent point, Ira. There's such a difference between governing and leadership. And in this example that you cited, you know, just ruling, which is not what people, that's not what people vote. They want to be able to have influence in what happens at, in among their elected officials. So, Noelia, I'm, I'm going to turn to you and then give this back over to Mike. As a longtime Democrat, you worked for two prominent Republicans, Laura Bush and Dick Reardon. We seem to be living in a time when crossing partisan lines to find solutions is more and more difficult. How do you react to the extreme political divisions we see in the country today, and what can we do about them? Well, my gut reaction is always sadness because I was so fortunate that when I entered politics at the beginning of 1994, unfortunately, it was Ira was already beyond his his uh, elected days at that point, so we never got a chance to work when I was at City Hall. We didn't work together. But I was so fortunate to learn with, among and see and witness, um, you know, bipartisanship in action. John Ferraro was just a prince among among men, and he at that time was the president of the L.A. City Council. And so we, and there were still Republicans on the city council back then. I think there were three or four. So they were in the ending days of that, uh, of that species at, at LA city council. But it was such a great time to see the behind the scenes, uh, conversations that were happening. It wasn't so much about getting credit, but getting things done. And so I learned under that model, and there was still a little bit of that when I went to the White House, because in those intervening years in the 90s, the decade of the 90s, you started to see a shift, and the contract with America was was kind of turning the page a little bit, and the way people saw uh, politics in Washington, D.C. And so I I believe there's still hope. I think there has to be hope. We can't just throw up our hands and say, that's just it. That's just the way it's going to be. I think it's, it's people like us who are going to be, who should take advantage of the opportunities to work with young people in the next generation to, to you know, share with them what can happen when you actually don't demonize, but actually be part of democracy to get things done for the people that you're elected to serve or the people that you are fortunate enough to be appointed to serve because that's, we have to have hope, Bob. We can't, we can't just assume it's not ever going to come back. It might take a while and I don't know if it'll come back to where we were, but there's got to be the next generation of, of working together and not um, looking at somebody who has a different opinion than you as the enemy. Yeah. Well, Mike, you and I ran campaigns against each other. We're on opposite sides, managed to remain friends. What's your take on that? Well, I agree, Bob. For 20 years, you've been wrong on every issue, but I still love you. Uh, and we, we were opponents, but we were never enemies. And the analogy, you've heard me use it a thousand times, is, you know, you have the Ohio State-Michigan football game. You don't burn down the stadium and kill everybody if you lose because, you know, what about the rematch? It's, it's not good for football. So I don't know. I think, and this was also a transition, next question I've got, We've had kind of a crazy fever dream in the Republican Party, kind of a certain grievance populism that's kind of run out of control because we had an accelerant from reality TV uh, who kind of caught a moment and not only approved of but encouraged bad behavior. We always used to keep the kooks, frankly, in both parties. Well, the leadership class knew they had a responsibility. 
Occasionally, we had a primary. I remember the old days, the Chamber of Commerce and Relican Party would set our firm or others out to go knock off some crank congressman or wipe out David Duke, you know. But now, there's there's no policing, and the Internet has given a lot of divisive voices free microphones of great power. Uh, and the question is, will will there be a reformation? The, the other thing we've got going... And this has me bubbling. I can actually, for once, attack the Democrats from moral high ground, which has been hard to do uh, as a Republican for the last uh, five years. But J.B. Pritzker, who's the governor of Illinois, is now going to walk to his reelection. Now, maybe he deserves reelection. Maybe he doesn't. I don't think he's a great governor. I don't think he's a terrible one. I think he's got him a C plus. But what happened was he spent $35 million in the Republican primary elevating a crank. Now, that's an old trick in politics. Gray Davis did it here, but not at this scope. And I'd say we're in a different, more dangerous era now. And the problem is, and you can argue the crank had his rich donor and everybody had a, the, the non-crank Republican, the mayor of the second biggest city in the state, Aurora, very moderate GOP guy got smashed last night. He had a rich guy behind him. But the bottom line is Pritzker took choice away. There's no election now. There's no serious person running. You can't, if you can add two and two, support the successionist guy who wants half Illinois to break away and join Kentucky uh, for governor. So the election's gone. And so we, we're now in this wild west of politics with no responsibility at many levels, cynicism and everything else. So, I, you know, we at the center try to model the idea that there can be a greater purpose in politics and, well, you know, people sometimes say we love how bipartisan we are. We're not bipartisan. We're both partisans. We disagree on a lot, but we want a mutually respectful politics with a common set of facts. Uh, and that's what's gone. And the problem, I, I'll just finish up by saying, I remember when I was a kid, my mom had a sorority sister. I was in Detroit. They were in Chicago who was married. And, you know, you kind of look at your parents, friends, who's interesting, who's not. And her, husband jim head was like the coolest guy of all he had been a navy pilot he flew with john glenn and he was don draper he was an ad man at leo burnett the great chicago ad agency they invented mcdonald's and many other and it was easily the best ad agency for a long time in the midwest huge power and i was talking to him once when i started out in politics years later and he said you know it must be so fun to run all those ads you guys in politics get to run you know, over at McDonald's, we're dying to run an ad that Burger King will will give you worms. But the minute we do that, a week later, we've killed those jerks at Burger King we can't stand. But we've wiped out the whole hamburger business. <laughs> and nobody over the pizza guys will rule the world then. We can't have that. So, I, you know, I we're, we're destroying the category now with this I'm right, you're evil stuff. And I do think, and this is my transition to a question, so I'll stop talking. The hearings in the last 48 hours have been very powerful in Washington. Normally, it's a food fight. But we see this this woman who was a good rank-and-file young soldier in the Republican Party saying enough and having the courage to do what a lot of these potentates and Senate leaders and others have not had to do, which is tell the damn truth. Um, you know, what do we think, and specifically for Ira, who knows this world well, and Noelia has had these senior jobs, uh, for Ira, the question for Noel, I just like your take on the whole thing. And Ira, I want to know, you think, you think there'd be a prosecution now? Cause boy, boy, I, I'm, I'm no lawyer. All my relatives were, I, uh, 
I, I, I luckily uh, never had the skill for that. I'm from a bunch of lawyers and judges. But it looks like a case is really emerging to me that you almost have to prosecute. So I love Ira on the legal take of the hearings and Noelle on the whole picture as a former senior staffer in a White House. Well, Mike, it's good that you didn't become a lawyer. You made a good career choice. <laughs> <laughs> my grandfather, Judge Murphy, and my father, Attorney Murphy, may disagree. But uh, 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 look, the, the question about uh, Trump, whether he should be indicted or not, it is, on the one hand, a very easy question, and it's, on the other hand, an incredibly difficult question. On the one hand, the evidence is such there isn't a scintilla of doubt that were we not talking about the president of the United States, if he was not involved, if this just involved uh, political functionaries, if this involved uh, members of the state legislature here and there, uh, that there would be criminal charges filed. Uh, but then it's the president. And that is a very real problem. Uh, I mean, it's so obvious there's no point in taking up our limited time talking about uh, the, the consequences of uh, prosecuting a president of the United States. Um, so I won't do that. But I will say this. I think, and then this would be open to hours of discussion, I think that it is far more profoundly important that the president of the United States, who tried to overthrow the United States, needs to be indicted. Whether he must go to prison after he is convicted, that's a separate question. But he must be indicted, and it is critical that he be convicted for the most serious of the charges. I agree. Noelia, what's your take on the whole thing, having worked in that building? Yes, exactly. And, you know, I have to say this woman, Cassidy Hutchinson, is that her, is that her last name? Yes. She, uh, she's what, 25, 26 years old, had, had been at the White House as a loyal foot soldier, not really, you know, that she was a behind the scenes person who was loyal to the administration and, of course, her boss, the chief of staff. And her conscience really, really, um, speaks volumes about the kind of person she is. And, and when she talked about being an American and she was so poised and, um, you know, for somebody that age, you're just, I'm impressed that, that she just held her own, uh, and told these very, very real anecdotes about what she saw at the White House on January the 6th. And what I found interesting was after the fact, when you saw all of the talking heads being interviewed, suddenly she has all these really close friends that she probably didn't have, which it was at the White House, because everybody wants to be attached to somebody who's been brave and has a conscience and is riveting the, the nation on this conversation. Um, obviously we're going to see what, what plays out in the next few days in terms of response from, the, from the people that, uh, were the subject of the, of the commentary that she shared. But just from the standpoint that she's, she's so, she was so poised in her youth. That's part of what gives me hope that people like her, who are obviously she's going to be paying the price for all of this, um, from a career perspective, but there's a, a greater price that she's going to benefit from. And that's being a solid American who has been loyal to the American people as opposed to one person when. She had to speak up, and her conscience really ruled the day yesterday. Noelia, I have to ask you, did President Bush ever throw his lunch against the wall? <laughs> no, but 
He ate it too fast to get to that point. <laughs> <laughs> Though it happens a lot in politics. I uh, I remember the Rick Lazio campaign. I went to go see the unhappy candidate on the bus, kind of dreading it. He and I didn't get along real well. And this poor staff kid came out wearing a tuna salad sandwich on his head, <laughs> saying, I guess he wanted chicken salad. <laughs> I will say, Bob, that there was the famous incident where he choked on the pretzel. I think it was probably Super Bowl Sunday. And maybe his team wasn't winning. I wasn't sure what the specifics were, but that was a very newsmaking event when he was choking on the pretzel. Unfortunately, he survived. My name is Jenna Spinelli, and I want to tell you about another podcast I think you'll enjoy, When the People Decide. It's a show about ballot initiatives, the people who organize them, and how they've shaped American politics. You'll hear how everyday people use the ballot initiative to push for change on issues they care about, from political reform to civil rights to criminal justice and everything in between. Subscribe to When the People Decide wherever you're listening right now. We're going to get to some questions and comments in a minute, but I, I'd first like to say again how thrilled we are that you're both going to be fellows this fall semester. Could you each talk about your study groups and what you hope students gain from them? And either one of you can go first. So just a little bit of some more of the, what we've kind of floated here in this conversation today. I had the great fortune to be a press secretary for the mayor of the second largest city in America. And a little bit about that. I had never been in politics. Had I didn't even vote for Dick because I never lived in the city of Los Angeles. So I constantly reminded him that I didn't, I'm not going to vote for you. So just, you know, get over yourself. And we had such a great working relationship at a great time. We worked with, you know, President Clinton was in office. We worked with Mayor Daley and Mayor Giuliani, who were in Chicago and New York, respectively. So we had two Republicans and a Democrat in the middle getting things done at the federal level with the, with the uh, Democratic White House, all in the interest of our respective cities. And that was just, you know, that's the university that I went to when it came to politics. And then I was able to, to transition to a Republican White House. And I remember when the person contacted me to say, to say that she was scouting for candidates for Mrs. Bush's press secretary and director of communications, I said to her, her, Anna Perez, who had been Barbara Bush's press secretary, said, had a, I'm a lifelong Democrat from the state of California, and I just worked as the president and CEO of the Democratic Convention Host Committee. What part of that adds up to, we're going to put you in a Republican White House? And uh, she started laughing, and she said, Laura's going to love it, and probably George will too. And thankfully, they did. And so I went there, and I saw a whole different perspective of public service and politics at not only at the federal level, but uh, internationally as well. So I became a citizen of the world. I like to think of myself that way. And then I've come back to Los Angeles, the city that really, um, you know, has been a part of, of my whole life after having left Brownsville with my family when I was five. So I want to take those experiences and lessons and share them and, you know, pull back the curtain a little bit about what went on in that in that era of politics and what can go on going forward with the new generation of political career people and uh, electeds the course what i uh, what i'm going to try to do and what i what i hope the uh, students uh, take from it uh the the very subject matter of police and prosecutorial misconduct 
uh, in, invites, to put it mildly, a visceral uh, reaction from just about everyone. Um, but I, I want to try to get past what I call the Jeopardy school of uh, public discourse. That is, I have the answer. What's the question? Uh, and to deal with that, what I want to try to do is bring multiple perspectives uh, from the uh, criminal justice system. You know, the expression often is that uh, your point of view is determined by your angle of vision. Well, um, for good or ill, uh, I've had uh, many different angles of vision, and I have, I hope out of that, a number of different perspectives, both micro and macro. Uh, I've been a line prosecutor, prosecuting one case at a time. I spent uh, 10 years doing exclusively criminal defense work, uh, defending cases, everything from DUI to murder cases. Uh, and then on the macro side, I, as you mentioned, uh, Bob, uh, I've been the chief executive for the district attorney's office where I prosecuted police officers. And then as the city attorney, I defended the city when police officers were alleged to have uh, used excessive force. So in, in that sense, uh, I think that I'd br- I bring a multiplicity of perspectives. Actually, I also spent a year as a juvenile court referee, which is a juvenile court judge hearing uh, juvenile matters. Um, so given all of that, uh, back to that uh, Jeopardy uh, uh, comment that I made, uh, I, I do hope that notwithstanding the visceral reaction that I expect uh, most students are going to bring to the discussion, because we all do when the subject is police and prosecutorial misconduct, but that there is an openness to see multiple perspectives. Uh, And if I can bring that to the class, then I think I've, well, it's what I accomplished what I'd hope to do. Uh, Mike, do you want to pick up with some, uh, you might have another question of your own or pick up with some of the audience questions. I've got one quick question, just curious for Ira. I was listening to him, making a note, if they ever finally make a case against me, I know I'm going to (laughs) hire for criminal defense. I beat the rap so far, but uh, they're closing in. Okay. I'm just curious, from your long experience in city politics and in the current environment, both crime and everything, just a one more mayor's question. Do you think the L.A. cop union endorsement means much? Is it a plus or a minus? Is it significant or not in current L.A. city politics? I can argue in the past there are times when it's a minus, way past times when it might have been a plus. I'm curious for your take, having been in that world deeply. Okay, Mike, those of us of a certain age (laughs) that uh, go back to uh, when the Police Protective League first got involved in politics. Then they were a real force. Um, That has changed over the years. It's changed over the years as the police department and police practices have become controversial. And so the impact of the Police Protective League pretty much tracks the way the public has reacted to the police department. There was a time, and it wasn't that long ago, uh, that uh, police were highly regarded. that isn't really the case always. Uh, I'm treading carefully here. Uh, that, uh, and so the endorsement of the Police Protective League is not particularly significant. 
the police protect the league learned long ago that an endorsement really is nice, but it's not enough. Uh, money talks. Uh, and so they do put a lot of money into campaigns. And to the extent that they run or their, uh, uh, their consultants run effective attack television, which is really the only thing they do, uh, then yeah, they are a force for that reason. But the endorsement as such of the police protective league is vastly less significant than it was back in the day. Gotcha. You know, it's such a great point that I was making. And from a communications perspective, literally trial by fire for me, my third week on the job as the press secretary to the mayor in 1994, the, the PPL, the Police Protective League, was in the middle of negotiations with the city for the contract for their, for the police force. And that was the time when carjackings were really becoming, you know, one of the, the crime du jour, if you will. And they had billboards all over the city where it was somebody in a car and they had a, a, a bad guy pointing a gun at them. Do you remember this, Ira? And, and that was to sway the public to support the contract that the police union wanted. Well, as, as fate would have it, um, one Friday night, there was a carjacking and I think it was down in the San Pedro area or close by south part of Los Angeles. And two um, international students from, I believe it was Japan, were killed in a carjacking. And so that became, I'm, I'm like telling the story that, I mean, I got chills going down my spine because we had to do a press conference appropriately um, internationally with um, Ambassador Mondale, who was the ambassador to Japan from the, from the United States and the mayor met privately with the parents of the two victims. And that was my introduction to this is not just local politics that we're involved in. And um, soon after, those billboards all came down and, it, and the police protectively from a, took a different tact in communicating their demands, if you will, for their contract negotiations. So it's all connected. It, you can't escape it. It's all local and communications plays such a, a huge role and how these things get uh, litigated in, pub in the public's eye. Mike, if I may just yeah, uh, sure. add one thing about the uh, Police Protective League, and th this would apply to all police unions, really. Uh, they're, in the first instance, a union, meaning that they are there for wages and working conditions. However, there is, uh, with uh, police unions, it's different than the union that represents other workers and so they're dealing with a critical social issue, and that spills over. As Noella pointed out, they're talking about wages and working conditions with the city council, and they're putting up ads of carjacking. Uh, what's the connection? Well, there is no connection, but there is a connection. But a, that a, a union that uh, is that has this schizophrenic, if you will, uh, a mission. Uh, that on the one hand, they are a union for wages and working conditions. On the other hand, they're in the front lines of a social issue. And the two don't accidentally overlap. Uh, they are deliberately uh, uh, mixed together. Yeah, they're playing political power games, going direct to the voters, which whatever works. Prison guard union, teachers union, it's not, not in the modern era, but it is kind of logically incongruent. Okay, we have some questions here. This is from... Anonymous MB, uh, might be. If Caruso wants to win, he needs to go full Bloomberg. 
That means being the best technocrat, including building new housing, moving to 100% clean energy, uh, installing protected bike lanes. I think Anonymous MB is a biker. Improving transit and adding trees and parks. He can't win just on crime. Young people see through that as fear-mongering. And while, quote, defund the police was dumb, so is, quote, give all city resources to police. Please discuss. Um, well, I, I think an anonymous here, uh, I think he makes a few good points. You know, Bloomberg only got about, I think it was low teens in the Democratic primary here in California. So, but I think being a technocrat rather than a Republican who gave years ago to pro-life candidates is probably a better path for my friend, uh, Rick Caruso. But what, what do you folks think per the question? Again, from my experience at City Hall, we, uh, when the mayor was in office, I wasn't a part of the campaign. I was part of the reelect, but not the campaign that got him into office to begin with. But uh, safety was the core issue. From a safe city, all else followed. You had job creating businesses coming to Los Angeles. You had neighborhoods that were more engaged and active or healthy, if you will. Um, and then that brought a tax base into the city, which then um, created... Um, the opportunities at City Hall for government to be more efficient because you had the machine was more well oiled because you had different parts that were now engaged. It wasn't just one issue making the city safer, but showing and also, um, you know, acting on uh, the mantra that from a safe city, all else follows so that there is interconnectedness. It's not just a one, not just a one trick pony, if you will. Another anonymous. Anonymous 2 wants to know, why do you think Joe Biden's poll numbers are so low? Isn't unemployment super low and wages on the rise? Does he have a communications problem? Does he deserve blame for high gas prices? What is Joe doing wrong? (laughs) And Bob, if you want to jump in on this, I know you have a few thoughts. Well, you know, part of the problem is clearly much of the economy is in good shape. Inflation is a worldwide problem. Biden's right about that. But saying that doesn't get him off the book. Herbert Hoover road tested the argument that the depression was a worldwide problem in 1932 and it didn't work out very well. (laughs) Uh, So Biden needs to give, I believe, a sense that he's doing something about inflation and not in drips and drabs, but maybe with a major Oval Office address where he says, here are four or five things we're going to do. And if I were him, I would be saying to to his policy people, what weapons do we have that we can deploy? People forget that in 1934, the economy was actually still very sluggish. The recovery was very slow. It didn't pick up until 1935. But Democrats did very well in the 34 midterms because people thought the president was doing something. And in that sense, I do think it's a communications failure or a communications problem. I think he needs to give a better sense that he is not only involved in this. He not only understands what people are going through, but he's doing something about it. And the content of the something doesn't matter all that much, as long as it's plausible to people that this will make a difference. I would advise we avoid any little red buttons with W-I-N on them with inflation yeah. now for, for the IRA remembers. Uh, that was an old Jerry Ford. Uh, oh, thing. it was, a, that he gave a whole speech to Congress in his 
program with people should whip inflation now. I mean, it was, it was crazy. Noelle, you have a take on that? Well, I, I was just going to say the problem is that he's president and, and all of these things people are dealing with every single day, you know, and, and to your point, Bob, the, the, the dribs and drabs. But on the other side, you've got, you know, a big issue like the global supply situation. Then more recently, the baby formula situation. And, you know, it's, it's pick your, you know, pick your poison, whatever the issue of the day is and, and gas prices going up and, you know, the price of food is going up and you're seeing a stark contrast and the only person to blame is the person at the White House. And that's just the way it is. But, but you're right. It is a communications issue. It is, it has to be I mean, fundamentally because as you say, Bob, the other metrics are, are, are strong, but people are not feeling them. They're, they're thinking about, you know, losing their jobs because of uh, the prices that everything's going up. But when people start to feel that they, they're, you know, they're not getting cost of living or they're not getting merit, but yet the prices are going up. So they're, you know, one step forward and two step back, two steps back when it comes to their, their bank accounts. Well, every week when you get punched in the nose at the gas pump and then three days later at the checkout line, it kind of breaks through all the political noise and you want to push a red button for big change. If I can just put two cents worth in here, yeah. it's not worth more than two cents. Uh, that's now five cents, Ira. It just exploded in value with inflation <laughs> since you started talking. <laughs> a good point, Mike. <laughs> no, all of these obviously uh, matters. I mean, with inflation, uh, you, you buy gas and it just cost me $115 to fill my tank. Uh, yeah, no, I, I get all that. Uh, all of which is uh, obviously true. I want to add one thing to it. Um, when Biden came in, the underlying theme, the one that cut across every issue, was we were getting away from the incompetency of the previous four years. And now, for God's sakes, we have competency. And, you know, like everybody's mother said, you only get one chance to make a first impression. Well, unfortunately for Biden, his first impression was the chaos of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, where this was to be a competent administration. And I'm not saying this to put the blame on Biden. That's a different discussion there. But the fact of the matter is there was chaos and it's all on Biden. He was the president at that time. He has never recovered from that moment. And inflation and everything else hasn't made it easier. Uh, and with the with COVID not going away entirely and then starting to resurge, and, and uh, we could go on for a lot of other things as well. But the critical point is that he, on that first impression, he lost it very big time in Afghanistan, and he has never recovered. And now how do you recover? Well, I don't know. You know, I would agree with that, and I just chime in. Also, they made a switch from running on normalcy and no more drama and center Democrat. When they got elected, I think they let the House liberal wing run a little while. And you started to be perceived as FDR2, big programs. And remember, we've had an asset bubble. We've had negative interest rates because all the world's central bankers flooding the money supply. We have not had a fiscal conservative 
uh, run fiscal policy in America for years. Trump was a huge spender. Biden was a pretty big spender. And, you know, shock and surprise. We, we dramatic COVID spending was tremendous, roughly equivalent to the second world war in real dollars. Now you can argue we had to do it all. Others would argue maybe we did a little too much. Bottom line is that plus the Ukrainian mess and the supply chain problem with COVID closing down factories, therefore driving up prices for things you need to make anything. It was kind of a perfect storm, though. I think there is some policy blame you can fairly put on the president. But as Noelia said, it's perceptions reality. He's the boss and gas costs too much. So it's pretty easy in our politics to punish anybody. And of the last eight elections and seven of them, the party in power has been punished because we've gone from the old politics of kind of things. Morning again in America. It's going fine. All right. We need new change. My oscillating with the economy to fire them, fire them, fire them, fire them. And that that's the problem. Makes it very hard to govern. Traditionally, at midterm elections, the American public gives the administration a yellow card. And then yeah. the general election, they give them a red card. Yep. And, uh, you know, people want to punish somebody. But now a good Democrat at this point would say true, but there's a lot of history of a bad first year midterm followed by a big comeback. And I can make the argument the Repubs are going to win the House. They have a good chance, so not as tight to win the Senate, where we have some insane candidates. That always is a problem. Uh, in a wave election, less of a problem than it probably ought to be. But anyway, then they may try to impeach Biden and do all kinds of crazy stuff once they get in power. And then it becomes more of a referendum on them in an electorate that likes to fire people. So, you know, I think Biden's bigger problem is the internal politics of the Democratic Party. You know, will they instantly in the first quarter start talking about primarying him, kind of leaving the decorum of the old days where you gave your president a little time to reset yeah. uh, or not? So we're going to have a lot at the center to talk about next year as this all plays out. I have a great question here, short and sweet from Anonymous. Another What happened, people? No courage? Come on. We're, we're naming <laughs> our names of these crazy opinions here from Anonymous 3. What gives you hope about politics today? <laughs> you have to reach, but I think that we're out of time. <laughs> uh, I'll tell okay. you the kids, the young kids we deal with at the center. Give me some hope. I'll get corny to paraphrase Martin Luther King. I think that the arc of the American political culture bends toward democracy. And uh, I would uh, describe Trump like an oil spill. That it, it uh, by and by, it washes away. And uh, it's uh, Trump, uh, you know, there never was a once upon a time in politics and happily ever after. Uh, that never defined politics. Right. Uh, but it is qualitatively uh, different now. Uh, and Trump was a demagogue for his time. Uh, and uh, he just sort of, if I may put it this way, uh, bluntly, if not crudely, uh, he gave the world the finger with both hands and he hit a responsive cord. And, uh, that's what I mean by saying that Trump, uh, was a demagogue for his time, that, uh, he, he didn't create, uh, this undercurrent, but he understood it in a, uh, feral way and he scratched every sore until it bled. And that's the story of Trump. Uh, and we're seeing Trumpism. But I see that like an oil spill uh, that as much as it despoils everything, 
uh, by and by nature takes over. And I think the American political culture, uh, deeply embedded, uh, will take over uh, in time. And I hope not too much time. Yeah. To build on that, I agree with Iran and the American culture dictates it. And I hate to use the word dictates, but what gives me hope is the Center for P- the Political Future. I think it's such important work that you're doing there. And I, I'm so excited to be a part of the, of the team come September because it gives us all a platform to share from our varied experiences. So many highlights, quite a few lowlights, which people need to know about because they exist and they're always going to exist, but to hopefully inspire the next generation of, of leadership in politics and public service. We believe in it. We live it. Uh, our hearts are in it. And, and I'm looking forward to being a part of the conversation that's going to continue that because we all know democracy is hard, but it is absolutely worth it. You know, that's a great note to conclude on. I want to thank both of you. I want to welcome you to the center and tell you how proud we are that you're, you're joining us. Uh, and I want to thank our audience and invite them to tune in next month for our next summer edition of The Bully Pulpit with two more of our new fellows. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USC P-O-L Future. That's USC P-O-L Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.